Anne-Françoise Pelet, en direct de Paris, vous écoutez E.E. Times on Air. And I'm Brian Santo, E.E. Times Editor-in-Chief, and this is your briefing for the week ending January 31st. In this episode, the Trump administration has been pressuring economic allies to ban the installation of Huawei 5G network equipment. The United Kingdom just said it will not accede to that demand. But the story is actually a little more complicated than that. Also, there are efforts all around the world aimed at building a thriving high-tech economy. It's not as easy as it sounds, however. France is deliberately trying to emulate the organic processes that resulted in Silicon Valley. Is that even possible? For starters, where do you start? Europeans are far more protective of their digital privacy rights than citizens in other markets. French President Emmanuel Macron explained that that could be where France could innovate and develop technological expertise without having to compete head-to-head with giant international conglomerates. Privacy is one of the preconditions of any innovation, mm. and it will be an increasing concern for a lot of people. During years and years, nobody dared basically to address this issue. And we had some scandals on the other side of uh, the ocean. And suddenly everybody woke up. The fact that we started to work at the European level and we put in place this new regulation to protect privacy regarding data in Europe made, for instance, Facebook, which experienced this bad story with Oxford and Analytica. Facebook itself announced one year ago, GDPR in Europe is a good regulation, we will adapt it, and we will make it as a global standard. And I think it was a good regulation for a lot of startups and new players. Because when you create your business in the European landscape, adapting yourself day one to this European regulation, you can provide to the consumer more guarantee, mm. you can better compete with big Chinese or American players without any sort of comparable guarantee, and you are compliant with this political objective. But everything is in the process, and this smart regulation in terms of method for me is a guarantee not to be captured as you fairly fair. One quick note on what we just heard Macron say. He talked about a scandal with Facebook and Oxford Analytica. The name of that other company is actually Cambridge Analytica. The reference is to 2018, when it was discovered that Cambridge Analytica had harvested the personal information of millions of Facebook subscribers and used it for political purposes. Okay, we'll get back to France and its efforts to encourage technical innovation in a moment. Huawei, Nokia, and Ericsson are the only three large vendors of 5G network infrastructure in the world. The Trump administration is worried that the Chinese government could gain access to traffic carried on Huawei equipment and has banned the installation of new Huawei equipment in the U.S. Furthermore, it's been pressuring economic allies to adopt similar bans. The Trump administration has only suspicions about Huawei equipment, however. If it has tried to find security leaks in Huawei equipment, it has not made that information public. Among the United States' economic allies, the United Kingdom has, in fact, conducted such a security review, which means its view on the security risks associated with using Huawei 5G equipment is likely to have some influence. UK security agencies announced earlier this year that they found no specific security problems with Huawei equipment. The final decision on a ban in the UK, however, rested with the leadership of the UK government. Earlier this week, 
Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced the UK would not ban Huawei equipment with some specific qualifications. No ban, but qualifications. What does that mean exactly? Figuring that out was actually a story in itself. Here's EE Times international editor Junko Yoshida explaining the story behind the story. The UK government Tuesday concluded its 5G telecom supply chain review and the government issued a guidance on a new set of telecom security requirements. In in particular, the government's focus was placed on how to treat high-risk vendors such as Huawei. When a big announcement like this pops up, um, we all know that every reporter at every media outlet on Earth is off to a race given that we all have pretty much the same set of documents released by the government, and we all want to report on it as soon as we can, the art of reporting boils down to two things. One, how fast your reporter can wade through a whole bunch of documents. Two, can we correctly identify what's new? I think truth to be told, in the case of the UK government announcement this week, you know, I felt like most media outlets already made up their mind what the storyline should be. Something along the line of, I think this is what the uh, Verge reported, quote, UK defies US and refuses to ban Huawei from 5G networks, unquote. Similarly, the Wall Street Journal headline read, quote, UK allows Huawei to build parts of 5G network, defying Trump, unquote. And CNN also reported, UK will allow Huawei to help build its 5G network despite US pressure. In contrast, though, um, EE Times London correspondent Nitin Dahad had something different on the original headline of his story. That caught my eyes. He wrote, the UK presses on with 5G and Huawei with a 35% cap. When I first saw this story, my first question was, a cap on what? Right? So I immediately pinged uh, Nitin. I'm here in Madison, Wisconsin. Nitin is uh, in London. But I pinged him on Skype chat. A 35% of what, Nitin? So I just want to redo this, how our conversation went down yesterday with Nitin. We we now have Nitin on the phone. Nitin, how are you? Hi, Junko. Yes, uh, I'm fine. Thank you. So tell me a bit of the background of um, how the announcement was uh, made in the UK, but more importantly, a a detail about 35% of cap. So actually, uh, it came out uh, somewhere around midday or afternoon yesterday. It popped up on my phone, Sky News first year put it up, and I couldn't find anything. But then a few minutes later, I found everything on the National Cyber Security Centre website, as well as the uh, UK government website. And it was pretty well coordinated because uh, you obviously had the uh, the big meeting chaired by Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Then the digital minister made the announcement, which is short and sweet. 
And then you had the National Cybersecurity Center put out the, well, it's actually four documents, but uh, four on the website, but uh, two of them are pretty long. Yeah, one is the security analysis and one is a blog by Ian Levy explaining it, who's the director of the National Cybersecurity Center. So yes, um, I would say very well coordinated in terms of getting everything out. And I was pretty much able to read the documents almost you know, 10 minutes after I saw the, the sky breaking news announcement. Why did you decide to focus on CAP? Um, I didn't actually. What, what I know at EE Times, what we try and do is sort of get behind the story. And uh, I'm not really political in what I write. So I, I didn't want to follow everybody else. And also because, you know, we have very much a sort of technology and sort of business of technology audience. I thought, okay, where is the story here? So, uh, and, and I think... Uh, a lot of people did say about the 35% cap, but I, they didn't go into much depth. So that's why we did. And I, and I think, you know, going into that, the crux of it is in the documents, it says for 5G access networks, what the guidance is saying, and this is guidance at the moment, which they want to put into legislation at some point. Uh, so this is a telecom security review. The National Cybersecurity Center has issued this guidance, but now government wants to put it into some kind of legislation. So coming to the detail, it says for 5G access networks, at most 35% of expected network traffic volume on any particular network should pass through a high-risk vendor uh, equipment. And at most 35% of base station sites nationally on any particular network should be served by equipment from a high-risk vendor. So has the UK government done anything similar in terms of placing a cap in terms of uh, the telecom vendors, you know, the base stations or traffic, uh, uh, you know, supplied by uh, certain suppliers. I mean, this seems, uh, this this cap thing's really new to me. What's your read on this, Nitin? So, so on 4G, uh, when we had 4G, uh, there was definitely um, uh, sort of guidance on resilience. And so you're always having two equipment providers. So I think it, it, it is, there's nothing new in that respect. I think uh, what's new is the figure. And if I look at Ian Levy's blog, I, just, I was trying to figure out yeah, how they came at the 35% figure. His is actually quite a good explanation. And uh, he says the cap at 35% ensures the UK will not become nationally dependent on a high-risk vendor while retaining competition in the market and allowing operators to continue to use two radio access networks. So the calculation of 35%, they've been quite subtle about it to make sure that it can't be easily gamed. For example, somebody might use a high-risk vendor base stations in all the cities and then a non-high-risk vendor's products in this countryside. So, you know, he was quite good at explaining that. And I think it makes sense because, you know, the others are obviously Ericsson and Nokia. So I suppose 35% is like, okay, yeah, there's three vendors. Let's make sure you know, all three get a chance. That's my take. But then, you know, when I think about it, if I'm an operator in the UK, if I'm under this guidance, how am I supposed to calculate 35% cap, both on traffic and base station equipment. Well, base stations is not very difficult. You know how many base stations you've got. So it's, it's a piece of physical hardware. That's true, yeah. Um, in terms of um, traffic, when you think about it, you've got the core network, which is going to be you know, commoditized hardware. So yeah. very likely you can measure 
traffic going through that. And then you've got the virtualized network functions on top, and that's all software. Again, you know, if you look at um, the analogy would be, for example, with yeah, sort of Google Analytics, uh, yeah, just as an example, I'm sure uh, there's ways of measuring what kind of traffic goes through both the core as well as the virtualized network. So I'm, I'm guessing there is a way of doing that. Right. Okay, so getting back to the original announcement by the UK, uh, can you just uh, do a recap on what they announced in terms of, I, I just focus on 35% cap thing, but on a big picture, what did they say about core and non-core network uh, when it comes to 5G? Right, so very importantly, and, it, and yeah, we've gone into detail in our article in the Times, but uh, in sort of a high level High-risk vendors will never be allowed on secure parts of the network. So they'll be excluded from all safety-related and safety-critical networks in critical national infrastructure. They'll also be excluded from uh, security-critical core functions, uh, which are in a sensitive part of the network. And, uh, I mean, interestingly, I, I think a lot of uh, media picked up on this, excluded from sensitive geographic locations such as nuclear sites and military bases. I think somebody commented, well, uh, isn't a Chinese contractor building one of the nuclear sites here? So, I mean, I'm not sure uh, how that plays, but that's not for us to comment. We're not political. And uh, then limited to a minority presence of no more than 35% in the periphery of the network, known as the access network, which connects devices and equipment to mobile phone masks. So that's pretty much... Uh, uh, what it's saying. So the uh, sort of like um, after the story was posted yesterday, I heard something about the BBC got in touch with you today. Is that right? Interestingly, yes. Um, uh, so the powers of social media, one of the BBC Radio 4 editors uh, this morning tweeted me uh, saying, can you get in touch? We We want to talk to you. Uh, and I thought that's sort of piqued my curiosity ah. and, and being, being the inquisitive yeah. person I am, I sort of uh, did and I responded and I, <laughs> uh, then we developed into a conversation. We had a chat and she said, Oh, be on standby. Uh, we'll do a live interview with you with um, one of our main news programs, which is uh, the world at one on BBC radio four. And so I was uh, on standby. Uh, she said at one, one fifteen PM UK time. At one fourteen, one of the producers called me up saying, we'll have to stand you down because we've had some breaking news. And this is normal with mainstream media. As you know, when you have breaking news, the last time I was stood down by breaking news was when Princess Diana uh, started weeping and one of my slots on BBC uh, One Television News from nine o'clock news got uh, pulled <laughs> because of that. So, you know, my second time you know, yes. being stood up by the BBC. But uh, but no, so... Um, so they were interested. I think they're, they're, what she was telling me was the editor saw our piece on EE Times and they wanted to talk to us, maybe because, yeah, maybe we had a little bit of a different take on it. No, that's an important thing. You know, we try to differentiate our stories from others. But more importantly, I think uh, you got to the intricacy of the uh, set of security requirements that the government agency came up with. You know, I think it's to be watched how the, this becomes laws and uh, people who run the networks in the UK are all for it or the, uh, I don't know if even if they have a say in it, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting development to say the least, right? Um, yes, certainly is. And um, I, I think one of the questions that the BBC wanted to ask me is how are they going to measure this? And, and you know, uh, one of the things that also I, I think, you know, in, in thinking about it yeah, and discussing it with, with you and others is, well, 
is it going to be voluntary? Uh, are the network operators going to have to sort of report it, uh, do an audit and, and yeah, provide reports? Just like, you know, for example, you know, the, in the fabulous business model in the semiconductor industry, uh, when you report royalties, you know, you rely on the manufacturers to report the royalties to the IP vendor. Is, is it going to be that kind of thing? I, I actually don't know enough. Uh, and I'd love to maybe learn a lot more about that. We'll stay on top of the news. Thank you so much, Nitin. Thank you, Junko. Earlier, I noted that since the UK actually performed a security review on Huawei equipment, the UK's decision on whether or not to accede to US demands for a Huawei ban would have some influence with other economic allies. The UK made its announcement on Tuesday. On Wednesday, the European Union echoed the UK's decision, recommending to its member states that they should be able to use Huawei equipment but installations in the network core should be minimized. Note that the EU can only provide guidance. Each member country can still make its own final decisions on the matter. It is no easy task to build a high-tech industry, and while it's possible to notch some successes, it's also difficult to build on those successes. Silicon Valley provides the ultimate roadmap. This enclave in California is still one of the few key focal points of the global semiconductor industry. There are specific elements of Silicon Valley success. They include excellent engineering schools, innovative engineers, an entrepreneurial philosophy, and local sources of financing. A shorthand term for all of those factors together is startup culture. Silicon Valley organically grew into a place with a startup culture a place where people with great ideas could gather, start companies to implement those ideas, and grow as businesses. Other places have tried and continue to try to emulate that success. That includes other states in the U.S. and also other countries. One of the more successful efforts was established in France with a program called La French Tech. Here again is French President Emmanuel Macron. The translation is by our correspondent in Paris, Anne-Françoise Pallet. Les Européens ont inventé la démocratie. Les Européens ont été au cœur des révolutions Europe was at the heart of previous industrial revolutions. And there is no reason why it shouldn't be at the heart of the next industrial revolutions. Five years ago, no one would have predicted where we are today. The common thought was that this movement would come to an end, that young people would get back on rails and join big groups or public services. Things are changing. France has the DNA for that, and Europe is playing a key role. Anne-Francoise recently wrote about La French Tech. She dialed in for discussion with me and Junko. So La French Tech, we were going to talk a little bit about why, you know, what, what, uh, what, where the beginning of the idea was, because we've talked about uh, Taiwan and their program to encourage startups, but La French Tech actually kind of preceded that. Oh, definitely. We were thinking that Taiwan, yeah, okay. yeah Taiwan is copying France, in my opinion, because I think no, no other countries, as far as I know, has done a nationwide campaign to encourage startups, especially in the field of tech, like France did. Actually, Macron, when he, well, our president, when he took office in 2017, he said, I want France to be a startup nation. That's That was the real very beginning. And then France became um, 
um, branded as such as the startup nation, and which is which is a great thing because um, you know Macron was involved uh, to an extent, but uh, by him becoming the president, La French Tech and the entire campaign had the uh-huh. you know the push from the top, from the very top, which is which is really unheard of in any other nation, as far as I know, right? Yeah, actually, it is actually very interesting because he um, he really became the ambassador of this startup nation thing. Um, he knows how to talk to investors. He knows how to talk to banks, to economic leaders. Uh, for example, earlier this week, we, has, we had Choose France in Versailles. So he decided not to do uh, to do this big meeting with the global leaders in a uh, at the Elysee Palace, but no, he decided to do it in Versailles. So he really makes it bigger, and um, that works in terms of visibility and uh, attri- attractivity. The Sun President. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> Louis the Fourteenth. Yeah. Well, the, you know, but I think the the Brian, you asked us that uh, what what was the impetus behind the La French Tech, right? And you asked us if that is a job thing. I think there's a definitely this job thing. The reason why I started out saying that back when I used to live in France, um, I used to interview a lot of engineers or the students just coming out of a you know good technical schools, and uh, you know they have uh, masters and PhDs, and you ask uh, you know I ask them that so, uh, what would you like to do you know? And then the a lot of those guys would say la poste. You know, La Poste is, uh, you know, post offices, right? But the Ministry of Post, that's a really, you know, telecommunication. That's actually a pretty big job. Or EDF, GDF, that's like, a, you know, gas and oil company. So the electricity companies. So it's, it's, so the idea was working for big national entities was the end goal. But those jobs are limited. And, you know, they're, they're doing great things with R&D and so forth. You know, there's big, powerful institutions, but their jobs are limited. So something like La French Tech was really, really important to for, for France to sustain the economy, but also satisfy the very well-educated engineers uh, in their endeavor to, you know, uh, capture their dreams. Mm-hmm. Well, I totally agree with you, Junko. Now it is cool. It is really cool when you graduate from from university or big school in France. It is cool to work for to work for a startup, right? And that totally changed. Um, now um, they 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 want to be entrepreneurs to uh, fight for it, their ideas, and uh, so it's totally a different of mindset. And that was just in short of like last seven years. That yeah. really amazes me. You know, <laughs> the, the, as a traditional nation like France can change the culture so quickly, you know, that totally astonishes me. And actually, it is at the basic basis of the creation of the La French Tech in 2013. They had three uh, three motivations. They wanted to federate a startup ecosystem. They wanted to accelerate, accelerate the startup growth and also to promote um, 
startups abroad. And um, so the turning point was at CES. Um, in 2014, they started to have, I think, 35 startups. The following year, they had 120. And I think this year, they had something like 300. So they gained visibility. They gained uh, press coverage. So that's why it became really and nice to join a startup and to have this exposure. Because when you work for a big company, you work for a big, uh, big project. You don't exist as you are. Um, so, and it started to be different. People want to fight the, for their ideas. And so. Well, that's, that's really interesting that uh, uh, France has been able to engineer uh, an attitude shift in such a short amount of time. But um, you can't get by with just attitude. Uh, you need a you need an you need a, an environment too. So in uh, the issue is is the resources. I mean, if everybody's trying to recapture the lightning that struck in Silicon Valley, but Silicon Valley had some very interesting resources. A, a very prestigious uh, technological. Uh, college, a couple of universities nearby, uh, a lot of people who were becoming engineers. Uh, so the educational system was there. Uh, they had uh, they had a financial community relatively close by. Um, at least uh, that that ended up becoming participants equally with with the engineers. Um, and the question is, um, to what extent France has. Um, similar resources upon which it can draw? Uh, well, um, well, it, it is not to the same extent as uh, what you just described, but we, we have in France 1 million engineers and we train every year 50,000 um, engineers. So that's something. And um, we, we have big schools. We have a newly founded school, um, well, re- recently founded school, Ecole 42, Ecole 42. So we have the educational um, resources. And then in terms mm-hmm. of funds, cash, the, the Lafrenchek is really working in that sense. Um, for example, um, it really rose the, 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 the money that startups uh, received in the, in the last four years. I think it moved from $2 billion uh, to uh, $5.5 billion this last year. So in four years, it's yeah. quite a change. People are starting to invest. We have 14,000 uh, startups in France. So the, it, it is moving. It is really wow. moving. And it, it is a job creator. Um, I think uh, they, they envisioned that um, we're going to have an additional 25,000 uh, jobs created this year um, thanks to startups. So they, they, they really are a driver for our economy. I think the, the phrase we use often is priming the pump. Right. Uh, getting getting the water flowing. And it sounds like the, the French government is doing that. You know, priming the pump doesn't work if you're you're pumping in a desert. You, know, you actually have to have <laughs> yeah. something. to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a reservoir to pump from. And it sounds like France has that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I, it was uh, it was kind of a challenging question, but we're all aware of that, that uh, there are some enormous uh, high tech companies based in France or doing operations in France. And uh, it, there's a long history of, so we, we kind of spoke about this before uh, before we got on the, our microphones, but uh, 
there's a, a strong tradition of mathematics in France. Now, that's actually very true. Um, uh, mathematics, physics, but also mathematics. And uh, for example, we rank second after the U.S. Uh, in terms of the field medal. Again, we have big schools, big um, research institutes um, that foster mathematics. And that's really useful, for example, for quantum um, technologies that are starting to um, gain visibility and exposure. Yeah, you know, when Juan Francois says big schools, and that's actually Grandes Ecoles, and that's the most prestigious. How many Grandes Ecoles do you have? There's a ranking, yeah. and I think that in the ranking, yeah. they rank 120, because uh, I checked for my yeah. kids the other day, and they were 120, <laughs> um, with Centrale Polytechnique being on the right. top. But Grandes Ecoles in France is like really equivalent to the graduate school education in the United States. It's far more advanced than getting master's degrees in engineering in the United oh, yeah, States. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a very different level. I just wanted to throw mm -hmm. that in. Yeah. It is it is true. It is a it's a five year degree. Um and uh, you do intense uh, mathematics, physics before you enter right. those schools. So it, it's a complete cursus. So there's uh the program is trying to generate uh, an attitude and an atmosphere and an environment to encourage startups where the ideas are generated within France, but they're also trying to attract startups from the rest of the world as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's very true. Uh, so um, La French Tech is um, an, a French initiative backed by the French government, and they have hubs in other places in the world. I was talking to uh, the co-founder this morning of um, La French Tech Beijing. Uh, so they, they're trying to um, attract um, st French startups to set presence in, um, in, for example, in China or the US or anywhere else. And they also want um, uh, Chinese talents to come to France and to uh, maybe go to Station F and have a slot there. And, uh, and it, it, again, it's really the idea of um, building an ecosystem and uh, connecting the startups uh, so that they can work together. Yeah, when when Anne-Francois says Station F, that is the, um, it's a, it, it, it actually a big building that used to be a railroad station. Mm -hmm. And yep. uh, now it's rebuilt to house 2,000 startups, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think. So yeah, it's a huge, right. huge railroad station turning into the, you know, startup uh, housing. I mean, it's, 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 it's a beautiful building, actually, mm -hmm. Brian. It yeah, is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So it's, uh, so. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it is very cool. And, mm -hmm. uh, but the, I guess the point here is that, um, the so the really the groundwork is done, but at the same time they want those um, you know uh, the people from all over the world to come you know open the door and make the um, getting the visa easy. You know the French is known France is known for a lot of red bureaucratic red tapes, but they are intentionally lowering that so that they could uh, bring more talents. And I think that's one of the things that I need to mention is that I did speak with several American companies who are actually now at Station F 
And uh, one of them actually came from Wisconsin. That really surprised me. And uh, I, when I talked to several American startups in France, I asked them, why did you come to France? Aside from getting stipend, you know, one of the things they said... Cheeseheads. Yeah, cheeseheads. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, cheese also. La fromage. Where, yeah, if you're yeah, a cheesehead, yeah. where else would you go but yeah. France, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but the, the interesting thing is that one of the startup guys said that he was advised by a professor at Stanford, if you are doing anything to do with medical um, things, you might want to start with somewhere that is very difficult get the approval. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In other words, that, uh, you know, Europe is complicated, right? I mean, Europe consists of uh, different countries and they have different laws. And in order to scale your business beyond your home country, um, you really need to learn how the different laws and different regions work. And for startups, what better way to learn that in Europe? Because it is the most um, challenging uh, um, the region, really, geography, right? Yeah, it sounds like if you succeed in France, you'll succeed everywhere. Yeah, well, it's, it's at least you know the, the, the different boundaries. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's not a given that if you succeed in France, no. you succeed everywhere. Mm -hmm. But if you just grew up, if you actually started your company in the United States and knowing only the U.S. regulations, you may succeed in the U.S., but you don't know how to do a business at all outside the United States. And in a global economy, that's a minus. That's a negative, in my opinion. I agree that in France, um, administrative services are so tough. Yeah. And uh, it takes so long to get things done. But but we've done some progress. We're getting there. It's right. better. And with the French tech or, for example, as you said, Station Web, things are getting easier and faster. Yeah. They're really helping um, entrepreneurs. And, and one last thing that I want to throw in, though, Brian, here, is that really the, the idea of uh, having your startup in Europe is actually interesting in a sense that, uh, you know, for France, there's a vested interest, right? But France wants to assert itself as a nation. And Europe also wants to assert itself as a Digital, you know, they they always Macron always talk about digital uh, sovereignty, right? And yep, that exactly. is like they don't want to get bulldozed by U.S. platform companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon. I mean, you know, okay, France don't don't have the equivalent to that, but at least they want to be uh, yeah, but but at least they want to be in a position to um, write the regulations. Uh, the, uh, the the sort of like uh, it, it, it create the outline of uh, where European citizens can assert their values in the society. Good example is GDPR, privacy, yes. right? And this mm -hmm. was a very successful regulation because now Facebook of the world, I mean, anyone who is doing anything to do with the... Uh, uh, dealing with the collecting privacy. data, yeah, privacy. I mean, this has become this. This is a regulation in Europe, but this has been now accepted as a global 
practice to protect privacy. So something like this, you know, Europe wants to assert itself, but Europe doesn't want to be the one saying that, well, you know, we can create all those regulations, but we don't have any companies to back it up or the uh, (laughs) companies that have their own technology. That's why startups are really, really important for for France or any country in Europe, actually, Mm -hmm. right? So should I ask the uh, the usual question? I, uh, I think we we kind of touched on this earlier, but the perception of France from from everybody else is uh, this is a country that it, where it's hard to do business, right? <laughs> yeah. Now we've already kind of alluded to the fact that that uh, President Macron is trying to change that, but has he been successful? I think so. I think we, we've well. Um, um, it's, it's successful. I don't know. It might be too uh, too surely, positive. Yeah, <laughs> uh, surely. Uh, I would I would say that he has made things move from stagnation to renewal. Um, we really have a diff. I think that from the outside there is a new um, new idea of France. France is moving while it was just stagnating. So that's that's in that sense he succeeded. That's big, as Alphonse can tell you. There's a lot of deep, deep tech startups in France, not just applications. Yeah, very interesting ones in quantum computing, in um, AI, in sensors. Well, very cool companies. You can find the article that Anne-Francoise wrote on La French Tech on eetimes.com. If you got to this podcast from our website, there's a link to the story embedded in the transcript we provide with every podcast. The electronics industry has a long history, and every week we like to take a moment and celebrate some of the anniversaries of great moments in the development of the industry. So, Sherman, if you'll step into the Wayback Machine, we're going to set the dial to 1885, when AT&T began creating its long-distance phone network. Twenty years later, in 1915, the company finally connected New York and San Francisco. On January 25th of that year, the company celebrated by having AT&T co-founder Alexander Graham Bell himself place the first transcontinental phone call. His former assistant, Thomas Watson, was in San Francisco to receive the call. While Bell and Watson were still connected, someone asked Bell if he'd repeat the first words he ever said over the telephone. Speaking into his handset, Bell said, Mr. Watson, come here. I want you. To which Watson replied, "Uh, Mr. Bell, I will, but it would take me a week now. On January 27th, in 2010, Apple introduced the iPad, which, according to some people, changed the course of computing history. I'm still not absolutely certain I know what those people are talking about. I have an iPad. I like my iPad. I use my iPad quite a lot, and I have no intention of giving it up. And that said... I'm still not exactly sure what it's for. Do you have an iPad? Do you use it for anything you couldn't easily do using something else? Also on January 27th, this time in 1880, that was the day Thomas Edison patented his incandescent light bulb. It wasn't the first light bulb. It wasn't even the first incandescent light bulb. In the patent itself, Edison says it is only an improvement but his improvements made electric lamps practical. One of the key improvements was the creation of a filament that lasted for months rather than hours. 
Now, oddly enough, he still hadn't devised that filament when he filed the patent. Instead, the patent mentions the use of cotton and linen threads, wood splints, papers coiled in various ways, also lamp black and something called plumbago, which I had to look up and I found out it was just an old word for graphite. Eventually, Edison hit upon a carbonized cotton thread that did the trick. By the way, the first person credited with creating a functional, albeit short-lived, light bulb was Humphrey Davy. He did it in 1802. Now, not quite 50 years later, in 1929, General Electric proposed an event honoring Edison's improved light bulb. Edison had long before been cut out at GE, and the Edison family was reluctant to get involved. But Edison's old friend, Henry Ford, ended up commandeering the planning of the event, which ended up being called Light's Golden Jubilee. Ford, Edison, and Harvey Firestone of the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company got together and recorded a video during that celebration. Firestone and Ford ask Edison, who is apparently quite deaf at this point, what he thinks about the prospects for a young man getting into the industry. The audio is pretty fuzzy, but this is Edison himself. He responds that there's still opportunity and that inventions and discovery can go on forever. Yes, there's more opening than ever was. There's more end to the inventions and discoveries to go on forever. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending January 31st. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com. You can find a new episode every Friday on our website or through any of the most popular places for podcasts. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.